My name is John. I had the wonderful privilege of being with the Master for three years before he returned to his throne in heaven. I remember well the first time I heard him. My friend Peter and I had been fishing all night and had caught nothing. We gave up shortly after daybreak and had gone ashore to clean and mend the nets. A stranger walked up to Peter's ship and climbed in. No one messed with our ships. I was ready to go after him and throw him out. But he began to speak to the crowd of fishermen nearby. I was stunned. I was stunned by the wisdom and grace that came from his lips. He spoke with such authority we knew he was speaking truth. When he was finished, he got out of the boat and went to Peter and said, Cast off and go fishing. No one told Peter what to do, and no one gave us instruction on how and when to fish. I was shocked when Peter said, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, we'll let down the nets. It was beyond belief. If my eyes had not seen it, I would still not believe it. Peter caught so many fish in one netting, his nets began to break. He yelled to us for help, and when he had the nets empty, the fish nearly sunk both boats. It was the best single catch of fish in our lives. Naturally, we wanted this fellow to join our fishing crew, but he had other plans. He said, follow me, and from now on you will catch men for the kingdom. That was Messiah language. Could this be the king? We left Dad and our crew and all our gear and followed Jesus. That was nearly 70 years ago. So much has happened since that day. At first we thought he would establish his throne and overthrow the Roman oppressors. Instead, they arrested him and hung him on a cross. We stood helplessly by and watched the one who had taught us so much who had cared for us so lovingly, who had won our hearts and loyalty. We watched him die a painful, bloody, slow death by crucifixion. I was devastated. I had nothing but his word. We left it all and followed him like he told us to do, and now all we had was his lifeless body hanging on that cross. Mary Magdalene was the first to discover he was gone. She went to the grave on Sunday morning. The Roman guard was gone, and the huge stone they used to close the doorway had been pushed away. She was out of breath when she found us and told us he had been taken from the tomb. I was always a faster runner than Peter. I got there first and looked into the open tomb. Mary was right. He was gone. Only the burial cloth was lying there. Peter came charging up, all huffing and puffing, and ran past me into the tomb. Mary hung around. Mary and I, or Peter and I went home. It was too much. I was so discouraged. Bad enough they crucified him. Now they had stolen his body and taken it who knows where. This grief was beyond description. The next thing we knew, Mary was yelling at us that she had seen the Lord. We told her to calm down. She was obviously hallucinating from grief, but she insisted. She claimed that she had talked with Jesus. She said, he's alive. We quickly called all the loyal followers together and locked the door. The Romans would not deal kindly with this. Sunday evening, while we were all gathered in the upper room, 
My heart stopped. He was suddenly there. He was alive. He's alive today. He walked among us for 40 days and then called us all to the Mount of Olives. He told us he was leaving and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then he started flying and was soon out of sight in the crowds. I don't expect you to believe this. It sounds ridiculous even to me, but it's true, and I'm a changed person. I took his last command personally and have spent the last 70 years telling everyone about him and teaching them to obey the truth. What an experience that has been. Ten days after he left us, we were all gathered back in the upper room. Suddenly, there was a violent rush of wind, and the next thing we knew, the air was filled with flames. We got power, overwhelming power from the Holy Spirit. Jesus had said he would come, and he did. We couldn't help ourselves. We ran out to the square and began telling everyone the good news that Jesus had died to pay for their sin. And if they believed in him, his completed work, and believed in him and his completed work, they would have eternal life. Thousands believed. It was thrilling. We went from a handful of followers to well over 3,000 believers on that day alone. And every day after, more came to faith in the risen Christ. One of the twelve remembered Jesus telling us that it was our responsibility to teach these new believers that they must obey all he had taught us. It would be disobedience if we failed. Someone suggested we needed to write down what we had been taught. Several of us took up that task. Imagine me, a fisherman by trade, becoming an author. I found it exhilarating to write. It was as the words and ideas came flooding back to my memory. My hand flew across page after page like it had a mind of its own. Over the years, I've been guided by the Holy Spirit to write many words on his behalf. And these letters and records have been the source of teaching for hundreds of converts to Christianity. I don't want to make it sound like I'm the only one who has contributed to the cause. There have been several of Christ's followers who have taken up the task. The Lord's half-brother James wrote a wonderful letter. Peter and Matthew and Mark and Dr. Luke have contributed as well. There was also a new convert that made a huge contribution. His name was Paul. I wish I had time to tell you his story, but another day, perhaps, all of us and many others went around preaching the good news. At first, Peter was our chief spokesperson. He developed a powerful delivery style that confronted the hearts of his listeners with truth. I love to hear him preach. One day, we were on our way to the temple for prayer, and a lame beggar shouted to us. He wanted gold. But Peter assured him we had none and then offered him healing in the name of Jesus. Right there, he grabbed the lame man by the hand and jerked him to his feet. As soon as the man stood, he felt the healing and began leaping and jumping, praising God. It was a huge rush to be used by God in that way. We preach with boldness. Many have come to faith in our Messiah. It hasn't all been roses, let me assure you. We've suffered terrible persecution. Almost all of our original company of believers have been killed. Stephen was first, then my brother James. That wicked Herod, he had him slashed to pieces with a sword. It was awful. Herod captured Peter and would have done the same to him had the Lord not opened the prison. And Peter walked out. I must say I was glad when I heard that Herod had died a horrible death, eaten by maggots. 
He wasn't the only one who attacked Christians. It is true, heads have been chopped off, swords have ripped us in two. Some have been crucified, that's what they did to Peter. Some torn apart by wild beasts. It hasn't been easy, but his word goes forward, and his truth will prevail. I'm an old man, as you can see, but I still have the fire in my heart that he put there. I don't think death itself can put out that flame. I love him. I love him more today than ever before. I'll see him soon, and I long to put my head on his chest again and hear him say, Well done, John. Thank you for listening to an old man. And now I'd like you to take a look at some of the writings of John. This is from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader. Whew, that's better. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you don't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's only son. Believing. What does that mean? Let's start with verse 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. Romans 3.23 states, For all have sinned 
and fall short of God's standard. That's why we're judged. We're all sinners. And God's holiness must reject sinful beings. Believing. Doesn't everybody believe about Jesus? This believing is different than knowing. Anybody recognize what that picture represents? What do you think? That's a picture of what? A semi. Are semis little or big? Very big. Is that semi driving on the right side of the road? Yes, he is. That's good. Now suppose we all hop in Mr. Larry's Corvette. Did you bring it today, Mr. Larry? Where are you? Didn't bring his Corvette. Oh, there he is. What? Okay. We'll all hop in Mr. Larry's Corvette right after church. He'll give us all rides. Larry? Is that okay? He say no. <laughs> Suppose we're driving down the other direction on that road and we see that semi coming. How do we know that he's going to stay on that side of the line? How do we know that? We don't know that. Well, why don't we pull off to the side of the road, get out of the car, and hide in the ditch? Because we have faith. Right? Because we believe. That means we put our confidence in that other guy's driving skills. That means we're depending on that person to do what he's supposed to do. Okay? That's the idea of believing. That's what the Bible talks about when it says we believe in him. Okay? Whoever believes in him, verse 16 said, that means to place your complete trust in him. Eternal life is not something that you can work for. All right? Eternal life comes from by putting your dependence on what Jesus did on the cross. Eternal life is not something you can pay for. We've got a collection plate back there, but don't even think about putting a nickel in it if you think that's going to get you eternal life. Not a chance. You can't even depend on someone else sprinkling water on you to get you to heaven. That's pretty blunt. But the Bible says the only way is when you put all your dependence on what he did when he allowed men to nail him to that cross. Believing. What does that mean? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Born again. What a strange concept. And yet when you think about it, it makes total sense. When you understand and accept Christ's payment for your sin and confess that... Confess with your words that God promises that he has saved you and given you eternal life. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Back to Romans 3. Let me read this portion 
from verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Now, folks, this is not leverance making this up. This comes directly from the Word of God. Check it yourself. Romans chapter 3. This was verse 22. Verse 23 says this. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. And the idea there is that we have been justified. Justified. That's a huge word. What does it mean? It means that God declares me, declares you to be absolutely perfect. Is that crazy? That's what the Word of God says. That when you put your trust in Jesus, He gives you eternal life. He pays for all your sin, and so you can have a perfectly right standing with the holy God who created the universe. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sin. I want you to think about it this morning. This is as serious as it gets. This is what your eternal destiny depends upon. You need to be born again. Many of you here have made testimony to the fact that you trusted Jesus Christ to have paid for your sins. You understand what a fantastic thing it is that He's granted you that forgiveness. You believe that what Jesus did on the cross was total payment for all your sin. Nothing more for you to do. And He says, guess what? I just want you to believe me. Just believe me. And when you do that, the moment you consciously make that choice to place your total dependence on what Jesus did, not on anything else, not going to church, not on anything else, just depend on what Jesus Christ did on that cross of Calvary as the total payment for your sin and to grant you eternal life. And at that very moment... God declares you to be as righteous as Jesus himself. How can I say all of this? Well, folks, it's because it comes from this book, the Holy Word of God. Please check it out. Don't take my word for it. You go to the book. If you need some help, some direction, I'm glad to help. There's others around here who would be more than happy to help. But do you see how important it is for you to know for certain that you have eternal life? You can right this moment. In fact, I I don't normally do this, but it might be that there's someone right now who knows that they need this kind of salvation. And if you'd be willing to come up here, I would pray for you. I'd be happy to have you come. Others can help. We've got some wonderful godly women who will be glad to help you ladies. And I'm offering right now. Come to the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
that you've given us your word. We thank you that every word in this book is truth. We depend on that. And we depend on you for our soul's salvation. And we depend on you for the eternal life that you promise. And I pray, God, if there's those even right now who are thinking about this, that your Holy Spirit would move among us and cause salvation to come today on this wonderful, blessed Easter Sunday morning. We pray in Jesus' name.